chapter number 39 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Pietadosi. Chapter 38 introduces some respectable characters with whom the reader is already acquainted and shows how monks and the jew laid their worthy heads together on the evening following that upon which the three worthies mentioned in the last chapter dispose of their little matter of business as therein narrated mr william sykes awakening from a nap drowsily growled forth an inquiry what time of night it was the room in which Mr. Sykes propounded this question was not one of those he had tenanted previously to the Chertsey expedition, although it was in the same quarter of the town, and was situated at no great distance from his former lodgings. It was not, in appearance, so desirable an habitation of his old quarters, being a mean and badly furnished apartment, a very limited size lighted only by one small window in the shelving roof, and abutting on a gross and dirty lane. Nor were there wanting other indications of the good gentleman's having gone down in the world of late, for a great stirrity of furniture, and total absence of comfort, together with the disappearance of all such small movables as spare clothes and linen, bespoke a state of extreme poverty, while the meagre and attenuated condition of Mr. Sykes himself would have fully confirmed these symptoms, if they had stood in any need of corroboration. The housebreaker was lying on the bed, wrapped in his white coat, by way of dressing gown, and displaying a set of features in no degree improved by the cadaverous hue of illness, and the addition of a soiled nightcap, a stiff black beard of a week's growth. The dog sat at the bedside, now eyeing his master with a wistful look, now pricking his ears, and uttering a low growl at some noise in the street, or in the lower part of the house, attracted his attention. Seated by the window, busily engaged in patching an old waistcoat that formed a portion of the robber's ordinary dress, was a female, so pale and reduced with botching and privation, that there would have been considerable difficulty in recognising that it was the same Nancy who was already figured in this tale, but for the voice in which she replied to Mr. Sykes' session. Not well, on seven, said the girl. How do you feel about tonight, Bill? As weak as water, replied Mr. Sykes, with an application on his eyes and limbs. Here, lend us a hand, and then I'll get all in this soldering bed, anyhow. It must not improve besides the Sykes' temper, for as the girl raised him up and led him to a chair, he muttered various curses on her awkwardness and struck her. Warning, are you? said Sykes. Come on, don't stand snivelling there. You can't do anything better than that. Come on, together. Do you hear me? I hear you, replied the girl, turning her face inside and tossing a laugh. What fancy have you got in your head now? Oh, right, you thought better of it, have you? Growled Sykes, marking the tear which trembled in her eye. 
all the better for you, you have. Why, well, you'd hit me to say you'd be hard upon me tonight, Bill, said the girl, laying her hand upon his shoulder. No, cried Mr. Sachs. Why not? Such a number of nights, said the girl, with a touch of woman's tenderness, which communicated something like sweetness of tone, even to her voice. Such a number of nights as I've been patient with you, nursing and caring for you, as if you had been a child, and it's the first I, I've seen you like yourself. You wouldn't have served me as you did just now, and you thought that, would you? Come, come, say you wouldn't. Well, then, rejoined Mr. Sykes, I wouldn't. Well, dummy, now, the girls want me again. It's nothing said the girl, throwing herself into a chair. Don't you mark me. I'll soon be over. Won't be over! demanded Sister Sykes with a savage voice. What foolery are you up to now again? Get up and bustle about and don't go over to me with your woman's nonsense! At any other time, this remonstrance... The tone in which it was delivered would have had the desired effect, but the girl, being really weak and exhausted, dropped her head over the deck of the chair and fainted before Mr. Sykes could doubt out a few of the appropriate oaths, which, which on similar occasions, he was accustomed to garage his threats. Not knowing very well what to do in this uncommon emergency, for Mrs. Nancy's hysterics were usually of that violent kind which the patient fights and struggles out of. That much insistence. Mr. Sykes tried a little blasphemy, and trying that mode of treatment, wholly ineffectual, called for assistance. What's the matter here, my dear? said Fagin, looking in. Lend a hand to the girl, can't you? lied Sykes impatiently. Don't stand shuddering and grinning at me! With an exclamation of surprise, <gasps> and taste from the girl's assistance, well, Mr. John Dawkins, otherwise known as the artful dodger, who had followed his venerable friend to the room, hastily deposited on the floor a bundle with which he was laden, and snatching a bottle from the grasp of Mr. Charlie Bates, who came close to its heels, uncorked it in a twinkling with his teeth, and poured a caution of its contents down the patient's throat, previously taking a taste himself to prevent mistakes. Give her a weave of free air with bellows, shall it? Mr. Dawkins, and slap her hands, Fagin, with pulled on doves of petticoats. These united restoratives, administered with great energy, especially that department consigned to Master Bates, appeared to consider his share in the proceedings, a piece of unexampled pleasantry, were not long in producing the desired effect. The girl gradually recovered the senses, and staggering to a chair by the bedside, hid her face upon the pillow, leaving Mr. Sykes to confront the newcomers in some astonishment at their unlooked-for appearance. Why, what evil wind has blown you here? he asked Fagin. No evil winds at all, my dear, for evil winds blow nobody any good, and I brought something good with me that you will be glad to see. Dodger, my dear, open the bundle and give Bill the little trifles we spend all our money on this morning.
In compliance with Mr. Fagin's request, the artful untied the bundle, which was of a large size and formed out of an old tablecloth, and handed the articles it contained, one by one, to Charlie Bates, who placed them on the table with various encomiums on their rarity and excellence. Didn't you rub it, boy, Bill? exclaimed the young gentleman, disclosing to view of the hard pastry. Stitch delicate creatures with stitch uh, and the limbs built with a very bone melt in your mouth, and there's an occasion to pickle. Half a pound of seven and sixpenny green, so precious strong you mix it with boiling water, eh? Good night, blow the lid of the teapot off. A pound with half a more sugar and lingers didn't work at all, that before I got you up to sort of pitch of goodness. Oh no! Two half quarter and brands, pound of best fresh, piece of double globsure, and to win your ball, some of the richest sort you ever lost. Uttering this last panegyric, Master Bates produced from one of his scented pockets a full size wine bottle, carefully corked, while Mr. Dawkins had this same instant poured out a wine glass full of raw spirits from the bottle they carried which the invalid tossed down his throat without a moment's hesitation. Ah, said Fagin, rubbing his hands with great satisfaction. You'll do, Bill. You'll do now. Do! exclaimed Mr. Sykes. I might have done for twenty times over. Oh, you did not let on thing to help me. What do you mean by leaving a man in this state? Three weeks and more, you fools out in vagabond. Only hear him, boys, said Fagin, shrugging his shoulders, and us come to bring him all these beautiful things. Oh, things is well enough in their way, observed Mr. Sykes, little soothed as he glanced over the table. What are you going to say for yourself? Why you shouldn't leave me here down in the mouth, hell? Blood and everything else and take no more notice of me all in mortal time. And I'm worthy at your dog. Drive him down, Charlie. I never see such a joy dog as that, right, Mr. Bates, doing as he was desired. Smelling the grump like the old lady a going to market. He make his walk soon on stage, that dog, whoo! A free fall with drama besides. Oh, you didn't, cried Sykes, as the dog retreated under the bed, still growling angrily. What have you going to say to yourself, you widow fancy? Eh? I was away from London, a week and more, my dear. What a plant, replied the Jew. What about the other fortnight? demanded Sykes. What about the other fortnight you let me lie in here like a sick rat now, so? I couldn't help it, Bill. I can't go into a long explanation for company, but I couldn't help it upon my honour. Upon your what? No, Sykes with that disgust. Yeah! Come here, Peter, that yeah, pie, you and you boys, take a hit of that out of my mouth, you'll choke me dead. Don't be out of temper, my dear, urged Fagin submissively. I've never forgot you, Bill, not once. No, I pounded you hadn't, replied Sykes with a bitter grin. 
You've been scheming and plotting away every hour of life, late shivering and burning here, and Bill was to do this, and Bill was to do that, and Bill was to do it all dirt cheap as soon as he got well, and it's quite poor enough for your work. It'd be for the girl I might died. Yeah, now, Bill, mm, remonstrated Fagin, eagerly catching at the word, if it hadn't been for the girl. Who but poor old Fagin would have the means of you having such a handy girl about you? He says true enough there, said Nancy, hastily forward. Let him be, let him be. Nancy's appearance gave a new turn to the conversation. The boys, receiving a sly wing from the wary old Jew, began to ply her with liquor, of which, however, she took very sparingly. Well, Fagin, assuming an unusual flow of spirits, gradually brought Mr. Sykes into a better temper by affecting to regard his threats as a little pleasant banter, and moreover by laughing very heartily at one or two rough jokes, which, after repeated applications to the spirit bottle, he condescended to make. It's all very well, said Mr. Sykes. Why must have some blood in the new night? I haven't a piece of coin about me, replied the Jew. Then you go lost at home, retorted Sykes. I must have some from here. Lots, cried Fagin, holding up his hands. I haven't so much as would. I don't know how much you've got, and I dare say you hardly know yourself, as it would take a pretty long time to count it, said Sykes. But it must have some do not, that's flat. Well, well, said Fagin with a sigh. Ah, we'll send the artful round presently. You won't do nothing of a kind, rejoined Mr. Sykes. Young fools are dear and too artful and will forget to come, or lose his way, or get dawned by traps, or be so perverted. Or anything for his excuse if you put him up to it. Nancy's a go to a can and fetch it. And make all sure and all light down have a snooze while she's gone. After a great deal of haggling and squabbling, Fagin bent down the amount of the required advance from five pounds to three pounds four and sixpence, protesting with many solemn adversations that would leave only leave him eighteen pence to keep house with. Mr. Sykes sullenly remarked if he couldn't get any more, he must accompany him home. But the dodger in Master Bates put the eatables in the cupboard. The Jew then, taking leave of its affectionate friend, returned homeward, attended by Nancy and the boys. Mr. Sykes, meanwhile, flinging himself on the bed and composing himself to sleep away the time until the young lady's return. In due course they arrived at Fagin's abode, where they found Toby Crackett and Mr. Chitling intent upon their fifteenth game at cribbage, which it's scarcely necessary to say that the gentleman lost, and with it his fifteenth and last sixpence, much to the amusement of his young friends. Mr. Crackett, apparently somewhat ashamed at being found relaxing himself with the gentleman, so much as inferior in station and mental endowments, yawned. Inquiring after Sykes, took up his hat to go. Has nobody been, Toby? asked Fagin. Not a living thing, 
answered Mr. Crackett, putting up his collar. It's been all as swipes. Your sand's up the handsome fagin. You reckon sends me for keep my house so long? Damn her, I'm as flat as a juryman, and she would go and sleep as fast as Newgate. If I hadn't had the good nature to use this youngster, Dory Dory, I'm blessed but I ain't. With these and other ejaculations of the same kind, Mr. Toby Crackett swept up his winnings and crammed them into his waistcoat pocket with a haughty air. As though such small pieces of silver were wholly beneath the consideration of a man of his figure. This done, he swaggered out of the room with as much, much elegance and gentility that Mr. Chitling, bestowing numerous admiring glances on his legs and boots till they were out of sight, assured the company that he considered his acquaintance cheap at fifteen sixpences in an interview, and that he didn't value his losses the snap of his little finger. What rum chap you are, Tom, said Master Bates, highly amused by this declaration. Not a bit of it, replied Mr. Chitley. I'm a Fagin. A very clever fellow, my dear, said Fagin, patting him on the shoulder, winking at his other pupils. And Mr. Crockett is heavy swell, ain't he, Fagin? asked Tom. No doubt at all of that, my dear. And it is a credible thing to have his acquaintance, ain't it, Fagin? pursued Tom. Very much so, indeed, my dear. They're only jealous, Tom, because they won't give it to them. Ah! cried Tom triumphantly. That's where it is. He's clean me out, but I can go and earn some more when I like, can't I, Fagin? To be sure you can, and the sooner you go, the better, Tom. So make up your loss at once. And don't lose any more time. Dodger! Charlie! It's time you're on the lay. Come! It's near ten, and nothing done yet. In obedience to this hint, the boys, nodding to Nancy, took up their hats and left the room. The Dodger and his vivacious friend indulging, as they went, in many witticisms at the expense of Mr. Chitling, in whose conduct it is but justice to say there was nothing very conspicuous or peculiar. Inasmuch as there are a great number of spirited young bloods upon town who pay a much higher price than Mr. Chitling for being seen in good society, and a great number of fine gentlemen, imposing the good society aforesaid, who established their reputation upon very much the same footing as Flash, Toby Crackett. Now, said Fagin, when they left the room, I'll go and get you the cash, Nancy. This is only the key of a little cupboard where I keep the few odd things the boys get, my dear. I never look up my money, for I've got no little luck up, my dear. Ha 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 None to look up. It's a portrait, Nancy, and no thanks. But I'm fond of seeing that young people about me, and I bear it all. I bear it all. Hush, he said, hastily concealing the key in his breast. Who's that? Listen! The girl, who was sitting at the table with her arms folded, appeared in no way interested in the arrival, or to care whether the person, whoever he was, came or went, until the murmur of a man's voice reached her ears. The instant she caught the sound, she tore off her bonnet and shawl, 
with the rapidity of lightning and thrust him under the table. The Jew turned the ground immediately afterwards. She muttered a complaint of the heat in a tone of languor that contrasted very remarkably with the extreme haste and violence of this action, which, however, had been unobserved by Fagin, who had his back towards her at that time. Bah! he whispered, as though nettled by the interruption. It's the man I expected before. He's coming downstairs. Not a word about the money while he's here, Nancy. He won't stop long. Not ten minutes, my dear. Laying his skinny forefinger upon his lip, the Jew carried a candle to the door, as a man's step was heard upon the stair without. He reached it at the same moment as the visitor, who, coming hastily into the room, was close upon the girl before he had observed her. It was Monks. Only one of my young people, said Fagin, observing that Monks drew back on the holding a stranger. Don't move, Nancy. The girl drew closer to the table, and glancing at Monks with an air of careful levity, withdrew her eyes. But he, as he turned towards Fagin, she stole another look, so keen and searching and full of purpose, that if there had been any bystander to observe the change, he could hardly have believed the two looks to have proceeded from the same person. Any news? Great. And... And good? asked Fagin, hesitating as though he feared to vex the other man by too being too sanguine. Not bad, anyway, replied Monks with a smile. I have been prompt enough this time. Let me have a word with you. The girl drew closer to the table and made no offer to leave the room. Although she could see that Monks was pointing it to her, the Jew, perhaps fearing she might say something aloud about the money, if he would endeavour to get rid of her, pointed upward and took Monks out of the room. Not that infernal hole we were in before. She could hear the man say as they went upstairs. Fagin laughed. <laughs> and making some reply which did not reach her, seemed by the creaking of the boards to lead his companion to the second story. Before the sound of this footsteps had ceased to echo through the house, the girl had slipped off her shoes, and drawing her gown loosely over her head, and muffling her arms in it, stood at the door, listening with breathless interest. The moment the noise ceased, she glided from the room, ascended the stairs with incredible softness and silence, and was lost in the gloom above. The room remained deserted for a quarter of an hour or more. The girl glided back with the same unearthly tread, and immediately afterwards the two men were heard descending. Monks went at once into the street, and the jewel crawled upstairs again for the money. When he returned, the girl was adjusting a shawl and bonnet, as if preparing to be gone. "'Why, Nance!' exclaimed the jewel, starting back as he put down the candle. "'How pale you are!' Bell, echoed the girl, shading her eyes with her hands as if to look steadily at him. Quite horrible. What have you been doing to yourself? Nothing uh, that I know of, except sitting in this closed place for I don't know how long and all, replied the girl carelessly. Come, let's get back. That's a dear. With a sigh for every piece of money, Fagin told the amount into her hand. They parted without more conversation, 
merely interchanging a good night. When the girl got into the open street, she sat down upon a doorstep and seemed for a few moments totally bewildered and unable to pursue her way. Suddenly she arose, and hurrying on in direction quite opposite to that in which Sykes was awaiting her returned, quickened her pace until it gradually resolved into a violent run. After completely exhausting herself, she stopped to take breath, and as if suddenly recollecting herself and imploring an inability to do something she was bent upon, wrung her hands and burst into tears. It might be that her tears relieved her, or that she felt the full hopelessness of her condition, but she turned back, and hurrying with nearly as great rapidity in the contrary direction, partly to recover the lost time, and partly to keep pace with the violent current of her own thoughts, soon reached the dwelling which uh, she had left the housebreaker. If she betrayed any agitation when she presented herself to Mr. Sykes, he did not observe it, for merely inquiring if she had brought the money, and receiving a reply in the affirmative, he uttered a growl of satisfaction, and replacing his head upon the pillow, resumed the slumbers which her arrival had interrupted. It was fortunate for her that the possession of money occasioned him so much employment the next day in the way of eating and drinking, and withal had so beneficial an effect in smoothing down the asperities of his temper, that he had neither time nor inclination to be very critical upon her behaviour and deportment. That she had all the abstracted and nervous matter of one who is in the eve of some bold and hazardous step, which it is required no common struggle to resolve upon, would have been obvious to the lynx-eyed Fagin, who would most probably have taken the alarm at once. But Mr. Sykes lacked the niceties of discrimination, and being troubled with no more subtle misgivings than those which resolve themselves into a dogged roughness of behaviour towards everybody, and being her furthermore in an unusually amiable condition, as has already been observed, saw nothing unusual in her demeanour, and indeed troubled himself so little about her that, had her agitation been far more perceptible than it was, it would have been very unlikely to have racked in his suspicions. As that day closed in, the girl's excitement increased, and when night came on, and she sat by, watching until the housebreaker should drink himself to sleep, there was an unusual paleness in her cheek and a fire in her eye, even Sykes observed with astonishment. Mr. Sykes, being weak from the fever, was lying in bed, taking hot water with his gin to render it less inflammatory, and he had pushed his glass towards Nancy to replenish for the third or fourth time, when these symptoms first struck him. "'What burn my body?' said the man, raising himself on his hands as he stared at the girl in his face. "'You look like a corpse come alive again!' What's the matter? Matter, replied the girl. Not then. What do you look at me so hard for? What fool is this? demanded Sykes, grasping her by the arm and shaking roughly. What is it? What do you mean? What are you thinking of? Oh, me thinks, Bill, replied the girl, shivering as she did so, pressing her hands upon her eyes. But, Lord, what was in that? The tone of forced gaiety in which the last words are spoken seemed to produce a deeper impression on Sykes than the wild and rigid look that the had preceded them. I tell you what it is, said Sykes. 
If you haven't caught fever, ain't going coming on now. There's something more unusual in the wind, and something dangerous too. You're not going to. No, damn it, you wouldn't do that. Do what? Asked the girl. There ain't. Asked Sykes, fixing his eyes upon her, muttering the words himself. There ain't a stall shall go going, or I'd call her throat three months ago. She'd got keeper coming on, that's it. Fortifying himself with this assurance, Sykes drained the glass to the bottom, and then, with many grumbling oaths, called for his physic. The girl jumped up with great alacrity, pulled it quickly out, but with a back towards him, and held the glassel to his lips while he drank off the contents. Now, said the robber, come on, sit aside me and put on your own face, or I'll alter it so that you won't know it again when you do want it. The girl obeyed. Sykes, locking a hand in his, fell back upon the pillow, turning his eyes upon her face. They closed, opened again, closed once more, again opened. He shifted his position restlessly, and after dozing again, and again, for two or three minutes, and as often springing up with a look of terror, and gazing vacantly around him, was suddenly stricken, as it were, while in the very attitude of rising into a deep and heavy sleep. The grasp of his hand relaxed, the upraised arm felt languidly by his side, and he lay like one in a profound trance. The laudum has taken effect at last, murmured the girl as she rose from the bedside. I may be too late, even now. She nicely ditched herself in her bonnet and shawl, looking fearfully round from time to time, as if, despite the sleeping draught, she expected every moment to feel the pressure of Sykes' heavy hand upon her shoulders. Then, stooping slowly round the bed, she kissed the robber's lips, and then, opening and closing the room door with noiseless touch, hurried from the house. A watchman was going half-past nine, down a dark passage through which she had to pass, and gaining the main thoroughfare. Was it long gone half-hour? asked the girl. It's right hour in the corner, said the man. Raising his lantern to her face, I can't get air in less than an hour or more, muttered Nancy, brushing swiftly past him and gliding rapidly down the street. Many of the shops were already closing in the back lanes and avenues through which she had tracked away, and making from spittle fields towards the west end of London. The clock struck ten, increasing her impatience. She tore along the narrow pavement, elbowing the passengers from side to side, darting almost under the horses' heads, across crowded streets where masters of persons were eagerly awaiting their opportunity to do the like. Woman is mad, said the people, turning to look after her as she rushed away. And she reached the more wealthy quarter of the town, the streets were comparatively deserted. And here her headlong progress excited a still greater curiosity in stragglers whom she hurried past. Some quickened their pace behind, as though to see whether she was hastening at such an unusual rate. And a few made head upon her, and she looked back, surprised at her undiminished speed, but they fell off one by one. And when she neared her place of destination, she was alone. It was a family hotel in a quiet but handsome street near Hyde Park, 
as the brilliant light of lamp which burned before its door guided her to the spot. A clock struck eleven. She had loitered for a few paces as though irresolute in making a up her mind to advance, but the sound determined her, and she stepped into the hall. The porter's seat was vacant. She looked round with an air of incertitude and advanced towards the stairs. Now, now, woman, said a smartly dressed female, looking out from the door behind her, what do you want here? A lady who's up in this house, answered the girl. A lady, was the reply, accompanied with a scornful look. What lady? Miss Maylie, said Nancy. The young woman, who had by this time noted her appearance, replied only by a look of virtuous disdain, and summoned a man to answer her. To him, Nancy repeated her request. What name am I to say? asked the waiter. It's of no use at saying any, replied Nancy. Nor business, said the man. No, 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 not neither, rejoined the girl. I must see the lady. Come said the man, pushing her towards the door. None of this. Take yourself off. I shall be carried out if I go, said the girl violently. I can make that the jobby two of you won't luck to. Is there any more here? she said, looking round. And we'll see a simple message carrying an old poor wretch like me. This appeal produced an effect on the good-tempered-faced man-cook who, with some of the other servants, was looking on, who stepped forward to interfere. "'Take it up for a joke, can't you?' said this person. Oh, "'What's the good?' replied the man. "'You don't suppose any young lady will see such as her, do you?' This allusion to Nancy's doubtful character raised a vast quantity of chaste wrath in the bosom of poor housemaids, who remarked with great fervour that the creature was a disgrace to her sex, and who strongly advocated her being thrown ruthlessly into the kennel. "'Do what you like with me,' said the girl, turning to the man again. "'But do what I ask you first, and I ask you to give this message for God Almighty's sake.' The soft-hearted cook added his intersection, and the result was that the man who had first appeared undertook its delivery. "'What's it to be?' said the man, with one foot on the stairs. A young woman earnestly asks to speak to Miss Maylie alone, said Nancy. Although if the lady won't hear the first word she has to say, she will know whether to hear her business or have it turned out of doors as an impostor. I say, said the man, you're coming in strong. You give the message, said the girl firmly, and let me hear the answer. The man ran upstairs. Nancy remained, pale and almost breathless, listening with quivering lip to the very audible expressions of scorn, of which the chaste housemaids were very prolific, and of which they became still more so, when the man returned and said that the young woman was to walk upstairs. "'It's no good being prosper in this world,' said the first housemate. "'Brass can do better than the gold. She's stood the fire,' said the second. A third considered of itself with wondering what way these are made of, and the fourth took the first in a quartet of shameful with which the Dianas concluded. Regardless of all this, for she had eightier matters at heart, Nancy followed the man, with trembling limbs, to a small antechamber, lighted by a lamp from the ceiling. 
Here he left her and retired. Oliver Twist, Chapter 39 End